Hello, one and all. Welcome back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast, made possible by the generous support of the William Wood Foundation. I'm Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and I'm glad to be back with you today. Uh, This is a very um, resonant subject today that's near and dear to our hearts here at the uh, U.S. Naval Institute. Uh, I refer to an article in the February issue um, in this, our 150th anniversary year. Yes, we're 150 years young at the Institute, and we're very excited to be here at this moment in time. Um, One of the people we've always sort of looked up to in a founding father kind of way is our first president, uh, John Worden, famous for uh, commanding the USS Monitor in its epochal clash with the CSS Virginia. But John Worden did a lot of other things between his victory in the Monitor. I call it a strategic victory. I know it's tactically arguable. Between the time he became the great hero of the nation for that, and he later became the first president of the U.S. Naval Institute, he had quite an interesting career and quite a number of exploits to his credit, along with the Monitor, during the Civil War. And we are pleased to roll out many of these for you this year in our sesquicentennial uh, celebration. It's going to run year-wide, year-long. And we're kicking it off with an article in the February issue by John Quarstein. Some of you might know him for this book that he's uh, quite well known for, The Monitor Boys. Wonderful book, a must-have for anybody who's interested in these things. Mr. Corstein was the director of the Virginia Museum of uh, the Virginia War Museum um, for 30 years, Uh, and he is the director emeritus of the USS Monitor Center at the Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia. He's written 19 books in addition to this one, and he's written numerous articles, exhibits, essays, and documentaries, and he graces our pages in the February issue with his intriguing and exciting Civil War narrative about Captain Worden versus the Rattlesnake. John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here with you, Eric. And it is a fabulous story. Every aspect of Worden's career just tells you more and more about the unique style of leadership he brought to play and uh, so yeah it was my uh, uh, pleasure to get to write this article uh, because I just like the title at first you know Uh, and uh, the rattlesnake of course is not really a rattlesnake but it actually is the renamed version of the CSS Nashville, which we all know was the first Confederate commerce raider, uh, first Confederate ship to have been recognized by a foreign power, Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And so when it ran the blockade back in, yeah, this, when it came back, it was Purchase runner Nick Skate. And so they sold it to a group of investors who turned it into a privateer that was named <clears throat> the Rattlesnake. And so it's not CSS Rattlesnake. This is a private ship, and but it was intended to be just like the Alabama and have depreciations across the seas against the Union Merchant Marine. And so it, it's the, that ship's story, this is its conclusion, but... Um, as you know, there's much more than just the uh, positive conclusion. This story com- contains one of the great naval histories of the, the Civil War, 
of course, John Lomer Worden. And Worden is famous for many things during the war. Number one, because of what he did down in Pensacola. Uh, right, you know, the war almost started in Pensacola rather than Charleston. So uh, I, I think uh, Worden did his duty well, but he ended up a POW. Uh, of course, he commanded the Monitor, and I can never say enough about the Monitor. Uh, I've written a couple of books dealing with it, and so that's fun. But then, you know, during the battle uh, on March 9th, he is grievously wounded. And when you think about his wound, and I have a chapter in my new book uh, that's out soon uh, with uh, the Naval Institute about Warden himself. And... <clears throat> You know, they just sing inner and shrapnel. And, uh, you know, some people thought he may not recover his eyesight. And his left eye never quite fully recovered, but he did himself. And despite his family's protestations, um, he became was named commander of one of the new Passaic class monitors, the Montauk. And... Uh, after, you know, when Worden first came back after his wound, he was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard reviewing these new Passaic class. And although he reviewed them, he will have more damning comments about the Passaic class by the time he leaves the ship. And so that's an even bigger story. Uh, but as we know, um, monitors are not ocean-going vessels, and uh, so even though his trip uh, in December down to Hampton Roads was not with any problems, but when they went down towards Beaufort, North Carolina, the ship almost sank. They had to throw over ammunition. Um, it was very perilous, um, and so somehow it got to Beaufort. It ran aground going into Beaufort, and so everyone's trying to make sure this ship is ready. Now, let's take a step back. What is the goal of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron of 1863? What's their, their, although their, their real goal is to, uh, of course, uh, blockade the ports. But they have this great desire, thanks to... Gustavus Vasa Fox and others that they must take that cradle of secession, Charleston. And Fox and others believed that monitor, monitors could do the job. Well, you know, when we looked at a monitor, we realized limited rate of fire, um, yes, a lot of protection, exposed pilot house, even the new version. Uh, and, uh, and so it had a very vulnerable hull. And so DuPont, who did not like monitors, although he'll, in a, in a court of inquiry, says, well, I thought they were okay. Uh, but he really had prejudices against them because he was a man of the, you know, the great ships of sail. And so, so to really understand the power of a monitor, he decides to test it, and he wants to test it with the, I guess, most proven officer in the U.S. Navy when it came to monitors, and that was 
John Worden. After all, he's been on one. He, he understands their capabilities. He has surveyed how well they work. And this is one of my favorite pictures. That's actually uh, Worden on the Montauk. So uh, that's really a powerful image. So anyway, um, Worden is given the task of going down to Savannah and going up the big Okachee River, um, which is the back door to Savannah. And he has three things he has to do. Well, four things, I would say. Number one, capture Fort McAllister. And number two, test the abilities of a monitor to destroy a fort as well as to withstand heavy shot at close range. His next thing was he was supposed to destroy the Florida Savannah Railroad, which tracks across the big Okachi. And finally, uh, his duty was to destroy the CSS Atlanta. Wow, you know, I mean, that's a big, big group of things for someone to do, but they had great faith that Worden would do so. So I guess so, we should break this down into how many stories, Eric? Uh, well, what? let's start with the attack on Fort McAllister. Um, they they pound the heck out of that fort, and they take a pounding themselves. Uh, I mean, they, they, Fort McAllister just shoots the, the Montauk all to hell, but they just keep, you know, it doesn't do any existential damage, but they beat it up pretty bad. And they feel like their gunnery isn't having much of an effect on the fort. But interestingly, you refer to the report from the fort commander, and they're getting their butts kicked by the Montauk. The Montauk just didn't realize the full effect they were having. So I feel like he actually did better right. on the fort uh, mission than he thought he did. Would you say that's yes, accurate? Yes, he did. Um, the one that he couldn't see, you know, I mean, not, I mean, everyone else could see, he could see, but they couldn't tell what damage they were doing because it was a mud and sand fort. They didn't realize they knocked out a, uh, uh, eight-inch uh, Columbiad, and they did not realize that it had impacted the fort. The big thing is they could repair that fort after every bombardment, and the casualties were very low. Now, the Montauk did take some serious hits on various days. You know, at times they were struck over 40 times by projectiles because you're firing at a range of around 1,400, 1,200 yards. And, and so... The solid shot used by McAllister really made the turd ring. In fact, Samuel Brown, who was up in the pilot house with Worden, he was the paymaster, but Worden called him his eyes because he could see better than Worden, said that a shot hit the pilot house and a bolt whizzed right by his head. In other words... Those pilot houses were a dead target and they were not as well protected in terms of iron as the turret itself. So it only had eight inches of armor. So, and they recorded the dents, the turret gets jammed. Um, one of the guns malfunctions because of <clears throat> just how the, it's hit. Um, the, the, the armored smokestack actually gets damaged you know which it was not supposed to be so there's all these damages that happen and remember he's going to have three different assaults against McAllister and so each one reaffirms to him 
that the monitor or monitors do not have adequate firepower. Had you had more guns firing on a on a wooden uh, on an earthen fort like we see at Port Royal Sound and elsewhere, you would have an effect. They would have to abandon that fort. But the slow rate of fire, um, even still a bad fire control, limited how much they could damage Fort McAllister. However, um, in his mission to destroy the um, commerce raider turned privateer rattlesnake, uh, they had resounding success, did they not? Tell us how that transpired. Oh, my gosh. It only took them 14 shots. The day before, um, you know, the uh, monitor had been shelling McAllister, and then all of a sudden they saw the Nashville, and they are all going to call it the Nashville. They see it come down, and there's a section of the Big Okachi called the Seven Mile Reach, and it runs aground. As Brown said, a rat had finally come out of its hole. Well, you know, so Worden says, oh, it's almost dark. We'll just wait till tomorrow. And uh, so the next day, um, he actually uses his 11-inch gun uh, to range, uh, you know, what type of fuse he needs to use to really have effect, effect on it. After the seventh shot, a 15-inch explosive shell hit above the uh, paddle box. And all of a sudden, they saw whitish smoke come out. And they had, in the morning, they had witnessed, like, all the crew members trying to get cannon off and things like that, but to no avail. Um, the 15-inch shell gun has the range, has the power to destroy any wooden ship afloat. And as we know, some Confederate casemated ships. So uh, it was a careful, deliberate firing. But as soon as they struck the uh, Nashville and saw the smoke and then saw it burst into flames, they knew they had success. And, and, and that was a, a big thing, you know. And so word in after that, um, is goes back down river. You, that's a great scene of the destruction of the, the rattlesnake or Nashville. I think the great thing is, is that uh, Word and his, I mean, Word is like a little kid because as he passes um, the Nahant coming up river to take its place, uh, Captain Downs, who's a good friend of Worden. You know, sees Word and he's dancing up and down on the deck, waving, ha ha, you know, we got the Nashville. And the thing that was a peril to the public had finally been destroyed. So Worden was very proud about himself. However, not too long later, uh, the Montauk is going to strike a torpedo. And what the Confederates did is after the Montauk comes upriver, right? They will go down there and they will put in, we believe this one to have been an electronic torpedo. And so as the Montauk goes over it, they hit the ignition and there's a huge boom. Actually, Worden thinks it's a shell exploding in the boiler room, which was one of his big concerns about um, the Passaic class. Nevertheless, this torpedo creates a crack a half inch wide in the hull of the ship, ranging um, uh, 
I think, uh, nine yards. So the water is rising in the engine room. And uh, they turn on the bilge pumps, the Worthington pumps, to no avail. The water keeps rising. And so Worden, thinking quickly, mud patches his ship. He runs it aground on an even keel so that the ship will no longer sink. And when they, uh, after the tide goes down, they go out, examine the ship. And there's a beautiful sketch of them looking at the ship on the mud flat. And it's like they ran it aground perfectly. And, mm -hmm. and so uh, Stevens, Thomas Stevens, who's the chief engineer of the, he's actually a first assistant engineer, but he's chief engineer of the Montauk. He is going to say, well, yeah, this is bad, this crack, but really it's due to shoddy iron. In other words, the manufacturers had poorly produced the iron and made it uh, more brittle, you know? And so they're able to patch it. But, um, and so the, the ship returns to Port Royal, but uh, just think of word. I mean, he's making all these judgments and when you read his report back to says, well, you know, we don't have enough firepower. Number two, yes, we can withstand a pounding. However, the turrets are susceptible to being jammed, um, that the um, armored smokestack can be jammed. The pilot house is vulnerable. And he adds the shoddy workmanship that is found in the engine room and with the plates themselves. When you have such thin plating, uh, you know, uh, an inch of boilerplate on your hull, and there are all these torpedoes around, you're at risk, especially if it's not properly produced iron. And so that's mm -hmm. part of Worden's report to DuPont. And he adds to the report, plus these things are unseaworthy. They still haven't resolved the overhang problem. So if anyone has a chance, you can look at, from the battles and leaders, the sketch to the Montauk runagram with, uh, you know, straight up, and you can see that overhang. And that's what made that ship unseaworthy in many different ways. Yeah, so th that's that was the second main point in your story that impressed me about uh, Worden. He's... he's um, commendable uh, in the thick of the firefight. But when uh, his vessel is a, strikes a torpedo, a mine in the 19th century sense, a torpedo, uh, that could have really gone south on him. But he did, he, he coolness under pressure, he did just the right move. And you're right, they beached it perfectly. Uh, there's a picture of that in the article. Uh, you're right, it really illustrates nicely how cleanly they got it right on, on there so they could fix it. And th that is just as important as the more sort of razzle dazzle thing of the um, firefight and uh, destroying. Oh, the I mean, I don't know how brilliant he was. Uh, yeah, I mean, both those components of his leadership in this story um, are impressive. Without a doubt. Um, I think his leadership is multifaceted in dealing with uh, the rattlesnake and Fort McAllister. Number one, he's a scientific officer, so he's judging everything that happens. What are those? pieces of shot from the fort 
having an impact on his vessel. Likewise, he's studying the, the converse impact on the fort. And because the monitor can't stay on station there days after days bombarding uh, the fort, that's why, you know, uh, uh, he doesn't know how much they're repairing the fort. And uh, I think the height of it all is when he knows he has a chance for the rattlesnake, he goes as close as he can to the natural rattlesnake, even while being bombarded by Fort McAllister. He, at that moment, has one duty and one duty alone, and that is to destroy the Nashville. So he's extremely focused. And if you notice um, how he goes through testing his shells, you know, he uses 11 shells to do that. Then once he figures it out, Samuel Brown says, actually, you could watch the flight of the 15 inch shells go through the air and strike right. the Nashville. Wow. Now that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, leadership, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how else you, and the torpedo is, is like, how many, how many monitors sink thanks to torpedoes? Well, we can think of several. You know, the Patapsico, what happened? They sank, nothing you know, too bad. Um, the Tecumseh sank, you know, 90 seconds. The Montauk could have sank very quickly, um, considering the depth of the big Okachi at that point. Mm -hmm. And yet Worden realizes he cannot give up his ship and do everything he must do. He must save his ship now that he realizes it's torpedo damage. And he doesn't know what to expect, how badly it's damaged until he goes down into the engine room and talks to Stevens. And they all, you know, kind of look. Uh, Samuel Brown describes it fairly well in his uh uh, little essay he wrote, but it, it's, I mean, it's quick thinking, you know, you just, just think of that day um, and how, and I think that's one year ago today, actually. Um, and just think how quick thinking he was in mm -hmm. all aspects of that duty. And Absolutely. then to be able to write it and record it and express it and explain it and to let DuPont know on paper those monitors are not going to be able to take or, or go past uh, Fort uh, Sumter nor Fort Moultrie. He, just, he knew it was impossible. But, you know, he did it anyway. You know, so... Uh, it was uh, what was great is there's, you know, Alvin Steimer's uh, chief engineer in the U.S. Navy who had been on the monitor with Word and they knew each other. He'd been an observer during the Battle of Charleston. And, uh, you know, they're going into a ring of fire. And so Alvin Steimer's watches. He, he's not there. I mean, he's on the Wishicon, a little out of the outer harbor. And. So he says at the after the battle's over that all the ironclad captains wanted to renew the fight and uh, uh, that these monitors could withstand even greater damage. 
Well, there's a court of inquiry, and Worden says, well, had I been ordered to go back and attack, I would have, but I counseled against it. These monitors could not withstand. I mean, um, let's see, which one, uh, Louis Hawken gets a, uh, Catskill gets a hole in its deck, because remember, the armored deck is not that well armored. You're facing plunging shots. The orders were not to fire at... Um, you know, at the casemate itself, but at the plunging shot, people on the cannon on parapet uh, and parapet. And and the problem is that after the battle, the Confederate report says, oh, yeah, yeah, those shells, those shots are actually dam damaging our fort. And they could have, if continued at the right spot, just like at Fort Pulaski, they could have damaged the casemate. But... The, the those ships just could not withstand. I mean, I, the Keokuk is a bad example, you know, uh, of of ships that got hit ninety three times. Just think of the Confederate firepower. And Worden recognized in his report to Dupont and in his uh, court of inquiry um, exactly those flaws that were found in the Passaic class. In fact, there is no unflawed monitor. I know I hate to say that as former director, or I'm director emeritus of the USS Monitor Center, and I'm supposed to love all things monitor, but when you really put it down, I think I would have stayed on shore. You know, so. yeah. Well, yeah, I think you can love it and still point out uh, shortcomings. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as you're telling, talking about this, his report on all of this um, is very much a clinical what's wrong with this ship class what can we do to improve it and I, I you're telling that and i see in that the inklings of sort of the birth of the u.s naval institute because fast forward to 1873 and he's uh here at the naval academy and he's looking out and you know this, the frigate constitution is the training vessel out there and you know we're not keeping up our navy's not keeping up with the modern developments in naval architecture and technology and you can see how that would bug him i mean even in his reports during the war it's like this ship class needs this done to it it needs these improvements this is fatally flawed this is a, um this is a weakness inherent in it what can we do to improve this ship class later can be conflated in one's mind to what can we do to improve this fleet and that's kind that's of correct and so you yeah, can see how is, way of thinking what can we do to make this better is very much there even during wartime a decade earlier now a little yes, bit and, about and, go ahead well um i have to say um you know after uh the court of inquiry he's assigned to um as an assistant to francis hoyt gregory who was in charge of the ironclad program um, word and was supposed to review uh ships made at private yards and of course he's going on ships like the casco class which she you know <laughs> and the kalamazoo class don't keep building them they're worthless and then he's the guy that evaluates uh, this is another story but there's a big argument in the u.s navy between uh, bf isherwood's engines and this guy named Dickerson, who was a lawyer, but he was a you know amateur engineer, and he tried to invent these engines. 
because they had political power, they put them in some ships. Mm. Well, one of them was the Idaho, and Worden takes it out on a test ship, brings it back, says, take the engines out. They're worthless. And the board says, oh, yeah, that, in fact, that takes up so much space, we'll make it into a store ship. Fortunately, it was designed by George Steers, and so it was one of the fastest store ships in the U.S. Navy afterwards. But you're quite correct about wording. He's always thinking, and I think he may have gained this insightful way of reviewing things from his service at the Naval Observatory under Matthew Fontaine Mari. You know, mm -hmm. never be satisfied with what you know. Seek to find new answers that will make, you know, navigation or the U.S. Navy a better entity. And you, you, you hit it right on target. There's a words to live by to this day. Um, so this is just one chapter of many interesting things about Worden uh, that are, I think, eye-opening to a lot of people who have heard of him but didn't know the full story of his uh, fascinating career. This is part of a larger project, I should point out to the viewers, um, that um, John here is working on with Robert Worden, a descendant of John Worden's, which will be the long overdue biography of John Worden. And these um, vignettes we're publishing in the magazine, this will be a more fully fleshed out story. Uh, so stay tuned for that uh, coming soon, eventually from Naval Institute Press. And I think this will be a fascinating book for a lot of people. Uh, we're gonna have more um, selections from his life to talk about uh, throughout this 150th anniversary year. Um, you've got another one with us coming up uh, a few issues from now, John. What, let's, uh, let's sort of preview that one a little bit, why don't we? What, what, oh, uh, the next one is really pretty neat. Uh, <laughs> I get excited about Worden, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, Worden is actually executive officer of a store ship during the Mexican War. And, you know, he quit the, oh, he didn't quit, but he asked to be assigned to active duty squadron. We've got a war going on. He is a young naval officer. He wants to be part of that war. You know, you We're have to gain glory, now, right? And part of the war with Mexico now, correct? Yes, yes. So he will go to war. He will become executive officer of store ship, the Southampton. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, by gleaning the log of the Southampton, you go through all this stuff about we gave these. The amazing thing is how much whiskey they delivered the various ships in the Gulf of California. It's unbelievable. But um, as, you know, as a store ship, it still had an active crew. And so he trains the crew at their um, carronades, but more importantly, with muskets and so forth. So he plays a critical role during the um, U.S., Navy's investiture of La Paz, and he he actually sees his first combat there. So he's going from a supply officer into becoming a combat officer, and, and that is giving him a different type of leadership skill that had you can only gain by being in combat. Plus, he's around all these luminaries, William Irvin, uh, Gosh, Samuel Francis DuPont. They're all there in uh, the Gulf of Mexico trying to conquer Baja California, which they did. 
And the peace treaty said, oh, no, you got to give it back. <laughs> and so uh, I don't know. Word doesn't say anything about that. But uh, he plays a, a very active role, um, just transporting 10-inch mortars onto the shore and siding them and, you know, having everything ready for them to defend the American positions. Uh, is I think, very significant. I I, I, I I just finished writing that chapter, no less. And <laughs> so that's why I get to write the article. Yeah, I finished well, another yeah. chapter um, three weeks ago about uh, his actually, at, when he's at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, testing all these ships, and you see his critical eye. And that, that, mm -hmm. that just amazed me. So as we talk about leadership, which is, I think, something that Worden imbued not only into the Naval Institute, but also the academy. It's, it's learning is doing, and doing is learning, and finding the solution to the problem at hand, to go beyond that problem, to go find success. And that's what he always did in his career. Amen to that. And we try to keep that spirit alive here. The place <laughs> he was president of. We take that seriously. We do. Uh, his spirit still imbues what do we try to do here. So um, this is a very exciting time for us and a very exciting time for um, these stories about uh, John Worden's career to come to light. Uh, and we are happy to share them with our readers and members. And we thank you for presenting them to us. And uh, I can't tell you how much I look forward to reading the complete saga, but I'm loving the vignettes that we're going to have as we go through this year. And stay tuned for the next one, folks. It sounds like a good one, all right. John, yeah. it's been great talking to you today, and we'll certainly have you back on as the year progresses to talk more about John Worden. Uh, thanks for joining us, and um, we'll see you next time, okay? Thank you Take so care. much, Eric. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. So do we. That's it for this time, folks. But uh, join us again very soon for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Until then, fair winds and following seas. <laughs>